even our little practice of hesitating for a few seconds before the commencing of the preaching of God's word is to show reverence in the same spirit of Nehemiah chapter 8 where those people showed great reverence for the word of God that was about to be opened in that pulpit. Amen. We want to show reverence. We don't care what the rest of the world does. We don't care about the degrading of Christianity around us as far as an example to us. We're not going to follow them. They don't have anything to show us because they've compromised with the world to make worship so casual and so contemporary that they've lost its sobriety and its holiness. Right. And we want to be grave and sober when we come before the words of the living God we want to celebrate those things that are worthy of celebration, and we want to be humbled and broken by reproofs and rebukes of the Word of God. Right. Let's open our Bibles to Isaiah 51, our preserved King James Bibles. Thank you, blessed God, for giving us your scriptures in our tongue. Amen. Isaiah 51 has 23 verses for us. God comforted his remnant church in Babylon that he would deliver them, and there would be great blessings to follow their deliverance out of that city. We have reached the third section of the book of Isaiah, as I mentioned to you last Lord's Day. The first 39 chapters emphasized Assyria and Sennacherib. There were many other nations mentioned there as well. And there were glimpses, glimpses of Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ. The next 10 chapters, 40 through 49, exalted God by His prophecies, about Cyrus the Persian coming to deliver the Jews even though he hadn't been born yet. It was still a hundred years away from him being born and so God wanted to testify to the nations and to his people that I am telling you these things in advance and giving you details for you to know that I am God and there is no other. I have looked for others and been unable to find any. I alone am God. And of course chapter 40, chapter 42 and chapter 15 chapter 49 and some others referred to the Messiah and John the Baptist even and we saw that then we came to chapter 50 and it's in a certain respect we can divide the book of Isaiah into three sections and so starting with 50 last Lord's Day we saw references to the Lord Jesus Christ quite plainly that the Lord God his father had taught him had woken him up every morning for lessons in prudence and wisdom and judgment and how he faithfully followed his father's will and then he humbled himself and submitted himself to scourging and all the other tortures that the Romans brought upon him before his crucifixion. We saw that last Lord's Day. And so now we're in this third section of Isaiah where there is more mention made of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're going to see him at the end of 52. We saw him in a great deal of Isaiah 50 last week. But now we have 51 in our way. And I don't mean that in a negative or critical way whatsoever. But we have chapter 51 before us. The chapter should be read along with the first 12 verses of the next chapter because they're tightly related. Beginning at verse 13 of chapter 52, verse 13 of chapter 52 you can see that Jesus Christ is introduced in the strongest of terms. And for those three verses and all 12 verses of Isaiah 53, we have Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, clearly described. I know that many of you probably consider Isaiah 53 your favorite chapter out of the book of Isaiah 
But its introduction is in the last three verses of 52, which we'll get in our second service today. These two chapters go together because we have an awake, awake in verse 9. We have an awake, awake in verse 17. And we have an awake, awake in verse 1 of chapter 52. Oh, that's a strong tie. Because nowhere else can you find these words in the entire Bible, let alone the book of Isaiah, except one occurrence in Deborah's song in Judges chapter 5. This chorus, this prayerful chorus, this prayerful appeal, this prayerful desire is unique. And it ties these two chapters together. 50 was different. 50 was different. 50 had Messiah saying, I gave my back to the smiters. There's nothing like that here until we get to the last three verses of 52. I'm saying all that to make you comfortable with this, these two new chapters that we're looking at. Out of 66 chapters in this book, I want you to be comfortable with them. And that's all I'll say, by the way, of introduction. Let's get down to business. Verses 1 through 3 of Isaiah chapter 51. The remnant, captive in Babylon, should look to their parents for a faith, their, the parents' faith for a blessing. The captive remnant in Babylon should look to their first parents and their faith to get a blessing. Who was the first parents of the captive exiles? in Babylon. Abraham and Sarah. So here we go. Verses 1 through 3. Before I read, and I'm sorry for laying you aside again, before I read, look at the first word of verse 1, which is the first word of verse 4, which is the first word of verse 7. There's a lot of threes. I was going to preach a sermon this morning, the threes of Isaiah 51. There's a lot of triplication in this chapter. Don't get distracted with that. I love every little thing it says. And these three hearkens. That's why I started with Acts 17.11. They were more noble than those in Thessalonica because they received the word with all readiness of mind. And here the Lord is asking us to listen. Hearken. 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 And those three hearkens are going to be followed up with three. Awake. Awake. And there's a whole lot more of threes in this chapter. But... If the Lord is saying to us three times, hearken, listen to me, pay attention. I have something to say to you. We should pay attention and listen to what he has to say to us. Because he's asking us to. And when the mighty God says, hearken, we should hearken. Hearken to me, ye that follow after righteousness, ye that seek the Lord. Look unto the rock whence ye are hewn, and to the hole of the pit whence ye are digged. Look unto Abraham your father, and unto Sarah that bear you. For I called him alone, and blessed him, and increased him. For the Lord shall comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. And he will make her wilderness like Eden, and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness shall be found therein, thanksgiving, and the voice of melody. Amen Amen and amen. The remnant in Babylon should look to their first parents and see their faith and follow it for a blessing. Not all the Jews in Babylon came back. It's, it's, it's sickening and saddening 
to read about the small group of 45,000 Jews that left Babylon to go back to Jerusalem. The others were too comfortable. But thanks be to God for his abundant mercy, Peter visited them. And when you close out 1 Peter, in chapter 5, he will say that he was in Babylon. The church there salutes you. So God was merciful even to those that didn't come back by sending his gospel to them generations later. Hearken to me. Here's the appeal of the Lord. Ye that follow after righteousness, ye that seek the Lord. When we see a verse like this, hearken to me, and then he describes the audience that he wants to listen to him. And we want to be that audience. Ye that follow after righteousness, and ye that seek the Lord. That's the same as those who order their conversation or write in Psalm 50 and verse 23. We want to be these, because it's to these he will show his salvation. It's to these he will show his mighty arm and deliver them. And so we want that to describe us. Those that follow after righteousness. This is a conditional request by the Lord. And ye that seek the Lord, are we seeking God, Jehovah, to know him better, to walk with him more closely, to, be, to delight in him, and to rejoice in him? And then we would put ourselves into this first verse, even though we are 2,600 years later than Isaiah. The first word should move us, but then the next two descriptions should also convict us and affect us. Elect persons, the true children of God, are known by their traits. All you got to do is watch them. They do different things than other people. They are not selfish. They're not loners. They're engaged in wanting to serve others and wanting to serve the Lord. They're, they're out front. They're wanting, they're wanting to do things. And it shows, the passion of their heart shows. And we want to follow that example. The character of the righteous is listed. You know, there's psalms like Psalm 15, the whole psalm, and I'm, I can't turn there. Psalm 24, 1 Thessalonians 1, 2 Peter chapter 1. These places in the Bible list the character traits of the righteous. They list the, the virtues of those that are going to be in heaven. And we want that to describe us. So we have a lesson already from the Lord that God wants to address and share truth with and show his salvation to the people that follow righteousness and seek the Lord. Right. Look unto the rock whence ye are hewn, and to the hole of the pit whence ye are digged. You Jewish exiles over there in Babylon, the word of the Lord comes to them, hearken to me. You're following righteousness. You're seeking me. I'm going to save you. But I want you to look to the quarry where your nation was dug out, for the, where the rock was found in that quarry and was pulled out and fashioned into your nation. It was Abraham and Sarah, because the next verse tells us that. I've cheated before we got here today and read ahead. But verse 1 is the quarry from which you get the solid foundation of a nation. And they had a solid foundation because both Abraham and Sarah are listed in Hebrews chapter 11. They both made the hall of faith, a man and his wife. Oh, that is a power couple, brethren. Where the, when the man and his wife make it into the hall of faith, Sarah is there in her own right. Abraham's there in his own right. But that's not enough. If you've read the New Testament, you know that Abraham is mentioned elsewhere just a few times. And you know that Sarah is mentioned elsewhere. Right. She's an example of a holy woman. 1 Peter 3, 5, and 6. Sarah is the example of a holy woman. 
that all women today ought to follow who called her husband Lord. It says so, 1 Peter 3, 5 and 6. But this is the quarry from which once a rock was taken out and made into the nation of Israel. It's a, it's a prophetic similitude. It's a metaphor. It's giving us a word picture of how the nation was formed. And so the Lord addresses His people to look to them. Now, of course, the Pharisees looked to them a little too much. And the first time John the Baptist met those Pharisees, he said, wait a minute, what are you doing out here for my baptism? Uh, you think you've got Abraham to your father? God is able of these oh, stones to raise up children to Abraham. God can make children of Abraham anytime he wants to. And so you shouldn't be putting your confidence in Abraham. You need the seed of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that difference, don't we? We look to Abraham a little tiny bit because that's where Jesus Christ came through and came from. But we look to the seed of Abraham. And if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. We see the whole spectrum. Do you know how blessed you are to be in 2020 and to be able to look back at the Bible and see it all fit together? We are blessed. Awake. Wake up. Everything in this world. Everything inside of you and the devil himself, the prince of the power of the air, wants to put you to sleep. But you should wake up. Verse 2, look unto Abraham your father and unto Sarah that bare you. For I called him alone and blessed him and increased him. Look at what I did to your father and mother. Look what I did especially to Abraham. I called him alone. I wasn't interested in anyone else on earth when I called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans. Remember where they are right now. They're in prison in a city named Babylon right next to Ur of the Chaldeans, if you'll allow me that geographical closure. I called him alone. He was my man. I didn't want his family. I wanted him to leave his father's house and to follow me to a place that I would show him. Not only did I call him alone, I blessed him. And I increased him. And I didn't need Keturah or Hagar to increase him. All I needed was Sarah and the son of promise, Isaac, and I increased him into a great nation. And Isaac had Jacob and Esau, and Jacob had 12 sons, and he's called, his name was changed to Israel because the whole nation came out of that man, Abraham, and his wife, Sarah, then Isaac and Rebekah, and then Jacob, and uh, four wives. But we'll just let that one go for the moment. And so this is, listen, you exiles, don't worry about being in Babylon. Look to Abraham. I quarried him as a great stone and formed a nation from him. Do you think I'm going to let everything fall apart? No, no way. I've got you covered. You look to his faith and you look to what I did to him and why I did it to him that I had a long-term plan in mind when I chose Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees. 4, verse 3, The Lord shall comfort Zion. I'm not going to desert you. Look to your parents. You're in the right family tree to be in the Old Testament of the Bible. You did need a family tree. There were only a few exceptions outside that family tree that God ever chose. For the Lord shall comfort Zion. He goes on to list all the blessings that he's going to do to the Jews when he brings them back from Babylon and puts them back in Judea. And how he's going to bless the place. It's going to look like the Garden of Eden. That's prophetic similitude and it's prophetic license. 
where Isaiah, by the Holy Spirit, is giving this grand and glorious picture of restoration to their nation. It was never quite that good. They didn't, they didn't really have every tree there, and they didn't have the tree of life there, and they didn't have those four rivers that are flowing in Genesis chapter 2, but for a word picture, I'm going to make it beautiful. And there's three things that are going to happen. These are th I'm going to try to avoid getting you sidetracked with triplication, but I want you to notice, joy and gladness shall be found therein, thanksgiving and the voice of melody. You're going to be singing, you're going to be giving thanks, and you are going to be emotionally excited and happy. And this is God's blessing to them. You're miserable right now in the city of Babylon, but I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to dress that place up. I know what you're thinking. Seventy years absent, the yard tends to get overgrown. You know, when we're gone for seven, do you know what a yard looks like after 70 days? You have notices on your front door. Cut your grass or we're going to throw you out and condemn your house. Those of you who live in a subdivision, it's the Homeowners Association. HOA is there. Oh, yeah, and they've got certified letters on your front door after 70 days, let alone 70 years. I will take care of you because you are Abraham's. Right. I chose Abraham alone. There was no one else. He is the progenitor of your whole nation. He comes down through Sarah, so it, limit, it gets Keturah and Hagar out of the picture. I will take care of you. I have a long-term plan in mind. And we are part of God's long-term plan by being in His Son, Jesus Christ, the seed of Abraham. And so the promises are ours, and it's His long-term plan. You never need to worry about anything. And if there was ever a group of people that should have the voice of melody and should have thanksgiving and should be filled with emotional joy and excitement, it should be us. How in the world can we sit in here, listen to this, with even 50% appreciation for it, and not respond with joy and excitement? If Israel could take comfort by their relationship to Abraham, how much more comfort can we take by our relationship to the seed of Abraham, our covenant head? And so when we look at these three verses, and we see that they were applied, and they deal directly with the exiles the captives, the remnant church of the Jews in the city of Babylon. Let's understand that. Let's understand the three verses, and I just explained them to you briefly. But let's also learn a lesson from it. If they should respond that way to getting a nickel on the dollar, right. how much are we going to respond? Because when you look at Israel, it... It is not something to get excited about. The place is pitiful. And it was pitiful. And they got hit by other enemies. And they had adversaries. But it was so much of an improvement that they were rejoicing in the Lord and they were singing. And at all times in Isaiah, and yet I am not going to confuse you about the book of Isaiah by putting them on equal footings with each other, that we can see the promises being fulfilled in Jesus Christ and the New Testament church. I am going to put the emphasis where the context puts the emphasis, and yet we know that the real singing and the best praise and the best thanksgiving was to be res reserved for a later date when those that came out of Abraham, the Jews, got to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ first. Okay, second lesson. 
verses 4 through 6, God's righteous salvation to all men was permanent. God's righteous salvation, those are the words used in this section of Scripture, to all men was permanent. It wasn't going to change. Verse 4, Hearken unto me, my people, and give ear unto me, O my nation. For a law shall proceed from me, and I will make my judgment to rest for a light of the people. My righteousness is near, my salvation is gone forth, and mine arms shall judge the people. The isles shall wait upon me, and on mine arms shall they trust. Lift up your eyes to the heavens, and look upon the earth beneath. For the heavens shall vanish away like smoke, and the earth shall wax old like a garment, and they that dwell therein shall die in like manner. But my salvation shall be forever, and my righteousness shall not be abolished. And amen. Do not leap to legal justification by the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ on the cross. We definitely believe in that transaction that Jesus Christ, by His vicarious substitution for us on the cross, saved us from hell to an eternal inheritance in heaven. But there's more than that. Because it is called a law here. And it is called judgment here. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ going forth to the Gentiles and to the Jews as well. It's the gospel because it's called in verse 4, I have a law that's going to proceed from me, and I'm going to make my judgment to rest for a light of the people. We're talking about something that gives light. We're not talking about something that gives life. We're talking about something that gives light. And this light is the righteousness and salvation of God's gospel, which we've had numerous times leading up to this place, if you can remember them. When you go to Psalm 19, think, do you know Psalm 19? You should. Psalm 119, you have the word law as one of the synonyms for God's words. And you have the word judgment as a synonym for God's words. And you have precepts and statutes and commandments and other words as synonyms for God's revelation. And this is the same thing right here, except this revelation is righteousness. I'm going to judge Babylon and I am going to bless you, and I am going to send my son, my servant Messiah, and he will save. It's the declaration of my righteousness to the earth, through you, to the isles of the Gentiles, who are going to wait on me as well. And my judgment, my justice, the revelation of my justice, and how fairly ideal that those people that took advantage of you, and though I use them as a chastening rod on you, O Israel, I'm going to punish them. And I'm going to raise up a son to be a savior. And so it's the gospel message more than all of a sudden we're leaping to just the legal phase of salvation. We're looking at the gospel message coming forth and it would never change again. I want you to appreciate the fact that it says in here, a law is going to proceed from me and I will make my judgment to rest. My judgment's not going to change. It's going to be solidly established The Old Testament changed. Those Jews in the New Testament were taken by surprise that didn't know the scriptures and the prophecies when Jesus came along and presented something different. John presented something different. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached. 
Then Paul came along and said, there's been a time of reformation. All that temple stuff is now outdated and gone. It's like an old garment. Throw it away and get a new garment. We've received a kingdom which, oh, cannot be moved. So you know what it means to rest. My case is settled. I'm resting my gospel. Brethren, what we believe today about the Lord Jesus Christ being the Savior of His elect people, Jesus Christ being the ruler of the world, Jesus Christ coming again in glory and great power is never going to change. He is the ruler of our kingdom, and it is the final kingdom. We're just going to move a little bit in location, but not in administration. The administration is the Lord Jesus Christ as the head of all. And so it's, it's, it's stated here, I'm going to send forth a new law. It's going to be my gospel of the New Testament. It's going to be a light for the people. And it's going to rest because it's not going to change again. My righteousness is near. It's, it's, this is coming soon. My salvation has gone forth. Watch the verbs. Let's, the, the verb tenses here in verse 5 are very amusing if you like being amused by the Lord making things a little trickier for us to read and find the true sense. In, in verse 5, don't let the verb tenses confuse you because you have the present near, because it's is near. You have the perfect tense, which means it's a past action of gone forth, and you have the future thrice in one verse. Hon honestly, in verse 5, my righteousness is, present tense near, my salvation is gone, past... I mean, Present perfect, meaning a past action still true in the present, gone forth, and mine arms shall judge, the aisles shall wait, on mine arm shall they trust. I just love the Lord. Amen. All of this is saying, I have something coming soon, and it's going to change how things are done. It's what I call the new world order. Because it's Jesus reproving the world, as he said in John chapter 12, turning the world upside down and leaving a kingdom in all nations that owed allegiance to another king. And they would lay down their lives for that king when an earthly king would chop their heads off for it or burn them at a stake or feed them to lions. That is a change in the world. And we're part of that. And he's promising here, I'm going to send out a law and, righteous, and judgment. I'm going to send out my word and my revelation of my righteous judgment. My gospel is going to go forth in all of its breadth and depth. And it's going to change things. Oh, it's beautiful. I want you to, I hope you can see that. Hearken to, look, we had a hearken in verse 1. We had a hearken in verse 4. Because I'm going to send my gospel forth. And when it says isles in verse 5, you now know who it's talking about in that verse. That's the Gentiles. Those are the great islands away from the little tiny nation, the little nation of Israel, landlocked as it was. Now we have islands because it's the islands of the sea. And it's a synonym for Gentiles and the nations of the world. Verse 6, lift up your eyes to heaven. And so verse 6 is saying, listen, everything else is going to change, but my gospel is not going to change. My kingdom will not change. This world is going to disappear. The heavens are going to disappear. And everyone on earth is going to disappear the same way. But my righteousness and my salvation, the message of my gospel, the message of my kingdom, my kingdom's administration will never change. These words are the same as Jesus. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Right. Jesus was not trying to give a lesson of 2 Peter chapter 3. Jesus was just saying, the most permanent things you know, the two most permanent things you know 
will disappear. What are the two most permanent things you know? BMW? Heaven and earth. The two most permanent things you know. Though the most permanent things you know are going to disappear, my gospel and kingdom administration will never disappear. I hope. That's what we're part of. We are, the, we are part of the only kingdom that will never change. Amen. The great empires of the world have changed and disappeared and gone. Look at Italy now. Let me, I, won't get off on, I won't get off on Italians. Even though one's in my family tree. But look at Italy now. Look at Greece now. They're, they're jokes. Look at Egypt now. The Bible says that he, he would make Egypt a base nation in the world. They were once great empires. Great kingdoms. Where's the Third Reich that was going to last a thousand years? Where, where, anybody find it? It's in BMW over here in Greer. The Third Reich. Our kingdom is forever. Amen. Verse 6. Heavens are going to disappear. The earth is going to disappear. But my, not my, the administration of my government is not going to disappear. My salvation is forever. And my righteousness shall not be abolished. We are part of a lasting kingdom. Amen. Our king will never resign. Yes. He'll never retire. Amen. And I can't do what Shadrach, Meshach, Lockridge can do. So you'll have to listen to him when you get home. But I can tell you this right here, and it's beautiful. I hope I've made it plain enough for you to appreciate it. The gospel's going to go forth. It's going to be a light to the people of the Jews. And the isles are going to wait upon it. And do we wait upon it today? Do we trust in his arm? Where do we get our strength from for earth and for eternity? From his arm. Right. We trust in his arm. Amen. We, we are the fulfillment of this passage in verse 5. On mine arm shall they trust. And Lord, we trust on your arm. Amen. We do not trust the arm of flesh. Right. We are not trusting CDC of America, the Center for Disease Control. We are trusting thee in all matters of life and eternity. Everything you know is transitory and temporal. Your job. Somebody in here will probably lose their job before June 30th. Everything you know is transitory and temporal. Even the universe as it now exists. But the kingdom of Messiah and the salvation of his people and gospel truth is forever and ever and ever. Amen. Amen. Verses 7 and 8 provide us the third lesson. Their persecutors, on the other hand, were temporary. While Jesus Christ's kingdom and God's kingdom is forever, those persecutors that they had to be around every day of their lives. Can you imagine living in Babylon, reading the newspaper, checking the internet, the Drudge Report, and seeing that Babylon was in charge every day? But they were temporary. And no one knew how temporary except Bible readers because no one could imagine Babylon being overthrown with the speed that it was overthrown. Verses 7 and 8. Hearken unto me, ye that know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear ye not the reproach of men, neither be ye afraid of their revilings. For the moth shall eat them up like a garment, and the worm shall eat them like wool. But my righteousness shall be forever, and my salvation from generation to generation. Amen. 
it's a repetition of what we've just had in the sense that the administration of Jesus Christ's kingdom and God's kingdom and the perfect revelation of God's will in the matters of salvation and righteousness would never change, but their oppressors in Babylon would certainly change. And so it says in verse 7, Hearken to me, ye that know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. If God's law is in your heart, if you love His law, if you hold it dear in your heart, and if you know righteousness and you know what is right and you do it, then God has another revelation for you. This is the third hearken in a row. Hearken in verse 1, hearken in verse 4, and hearken right here in verse 7. Fear ye not the reproach of men, neither be ye afraid of their revilings, because they are going to disappear as easily as a garment stuffed in a drawer without mothballs. I remember as a lad watching my brother eat them. Just, that was just to get your attention and make sure that you're awake, awake. My mother would put these little white balls around. You know, they look kind of like candy because we didn't get very much of that. But if you don't put mothballs around, moths are going to get a hold of a garment and just trash it. They're going to get a hold of wool and just trash it. And so the Lord is saying, don't be afraid of those Babylonians that are reviling you. You're part of a kingdom that's going to last forever. You're part of a permanent administration of the Almighty God of the Bible and His Son, Jesus Christ. Don't worry about what they say. They're all going to disappear. But let me say again, the administration of my kingdom and my gospel will never disappear and it will never change. There is so much comfort in that. We watch nations come and go, power come and go, politicians come and go, companies come and go, industries come and go. It's all transitory and temporal, but God doesn't change. And His kingdom doesn't change. Jesus is on the throne. He's not going to abdicate it. No one's going to take Him off it. And we're a part of that kingdom. And that gospel message tells it. It's called preaching the gospel of the... Preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Preaching the gospel of the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is like unto. The kingdom of heaven is like unto. The kingdom of heaven is like unto. Do you know what was bursting forth on this earth when Jesus Christ was saying those words? The kingdom of heaven is like unto. This is the administration of my government. It is righteous and it is judgment. It is fair, just, equitable. It is perfect. And it will never change. The world of pagans and many so-called Christians hate true Bible believers. Do you know that? We're a hated minority today. But we must not worry about either. For God will expose and destroy the enemies of His people. And we can get that lesson out of those two verses. Let's go to verse 9. Verses 9 through 11. Look at your Bibles. Isaiah 51, verses 9 through 11. They could trust God to deliver them, just like He had delivered His church of the Jews before. They could trust God to deliver them like before. Verses 9 through 11. Awake! Awake! Put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake, as in the ancient days, in the generations of old. Art thou not it that hath cut Rahab and wounded the dragon? Art thou not it which hath dried the sea, the waters of the great deep, that hath made the depths of the sea away for the ransom to pass over? Therefore the redeemed of the Lord shall return, 
and come with singing unto Zion, and everlasting joy shall be upon their head. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and mourning shall flee away. More triplication, but we'll overlook it. To get back to verse 9, because we've got three of these awake awakes. 9, 17 of this chapter, and then verse 1 of chapter 52. Now this is a prayer, this is a chorus. It's, like, it's taken from a song in Judges chapter 5, and it's a prayer to the arm of the Lord. Not the Lord, that's why it's called it. It's a little, you've never, you've never prayed to it, have you? Listen, I've got to tell you the truth, I've never prayed to it. But I may after this. See, we're all learning something. Because the prayer is addressed to the arm of the Lord. So awake in verse 9. Awake, O arm of the Lord. Arm, don't be folded on his chest. We've been here for 70 years. We haven't seen the arm of the Lord for 70 years. Awake, show us your arm. It's not sh Arm, show us is really how it's worded. If you'll look at it and you'll think about it, the prayer is to the arm. O arm of the Lord, wake up, as in the ancient days, like you used to do for our fathers. Art thou not it? It doesn't say, art thou not he? Art thou not it that hath cut Rahab and wounded the dragon? Listen, we're going to blow right over this point. Rahab equals Egypt, period. Rahab equals Egypt. Egypt, period. How do you know, Pastor? How do you know? What commentary gave you that insight? Oh, my. No. The, the next verse gives me the insight. Art thou not it which hath dried the sea, the waters of the great deep, and hath made the depths of the sea away for the ransom to pass over? And Psalm 87, that I gave you last night to read, that used Rahab for Egypt as well, in a list of five nations that had been involved in the history of Israel. You say, well, why is Rahab used as a synonym, a cult word, a secret word for Egypt? I don't know. The Lord's going to show us that sometime. You know, you know I, could, I could say this commentator says this, and this commentator suggests that. Oh, and they're all over the map. It's because Egypt is like the shape of a pear. And, and Rahab in the depths of the Hebrew language means the shape of a pear. Then another one will say Rahab means pride. And Egypt was proud. You say, how do you get pear and pride? Well, they both start with P. Oh, but that's in English. You see, you just give up. I don't know. You say, are you scared by not knowing? Not a bit. Because I have the context telling me that this is Egypt. And the dragon is Pharaoh of the Nile. You say, how do you know that? Because Ezekiel tells me that over and over. Ezekiel tells me about the dragon of Egypt being Pharaoh. We just read the Bible. We let the Bible be the commentary on the Bible. No, let's not waste time on Rahab. You can go do a study on Rahab, and if you find it, I'll pay you for it. I'll get you a gift certificate somewhere. But remember, you've got to be able to prove it to me. I can prove that it's Egypt, but you've got to try to prove what it means. All I know is it's a, it's a word for Egypt. Now, now, did you get disturbed this morning when you heard the word Jeshurun? Did you get, why didn't you get worried about that one? It's in the Bible's less, time than, less times than Rahab for Egypt. Why didn't you get worried about Jeshurun? Because the context made it real simple, didn't it? And you didn't really care what the word actually means in its details, but you knew that it represented Israel.
the prayer, the chorus. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Now the arm of the Lord always has strength, but it's arm of the Lord, show some strength. Do something mighty for us like you used to do. You dried up the Red Sea in verse 10. You made a path for the ransom to pass over. Verse 11, and notice the answer in the prayer. Therefore, because this is prophecy, Therefore, the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come with singing unto Zion. When there's a prayer, and it's a prophet giving this prayer, and it's a prophet describing what's going to happen, you can have the answer to your prayer inside of three verses. Because the whole lesson of the book of Isaiah is, God will redeem His people. But it shows them praying, and how they prayed in chorus for the Lord to show His mighty strength, like He had done in Egypt. Therefore, the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come with singing unto Zion. And you have verse 11, and everlasting joy shall be upon their head. That group that came back did have a great deal of joy. There was sorrow to come in the history of the nation. And so when we look at a verse like this that uses a word like everlasting joy, we see in it that generation had it pretty well because they, did, they weren't suffering like they were in Babylon. But we also see that there is a hint there of what we have had hinted to us all along that there will be everlasting joy for the church of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Even we today don't have everlasting joy because sometimes our joy is interrupted, though we're told to rejoice always, and again I say rejoice, but it will reach into eternity where it will be everlasting joy. Sorrow and mourning shall flee away in that great day. And so there's hints because we know the, the ultimate fulfillment of these verses must be eternal and must be spiritual, not just earthly and not just for those coming out of Babylon. But the main lesson is coming out of Babylon because they're not asking for substitutionary atonement on the cross. They're asking, deliver us from Babylon like you delivered us from Egypt. You made a path in the sea. That was a mighty arm. Show us an arm like that. You may pray like this inspired prayer with such a bold request for God to work on your behalf like he has in the past with trust in his answer, though you are no prophet. You can pray like that. Awake, Lord. I haven't seen you doing anything for me in this particular matter in my life. Show me your mighty power. Sherry and I pray that way, but we haven't used awake. We've never told the Lord to wake up. But it's here. You know, I, I get a little nervous sometimes with the Bible telling the Lord to wake up. But you can see it here, can't you? Yes. And notice how it addresses the arm as the object of the prayer, O arm of the Lord. And that's why you have it. Art thou not it? Rather than art thou not he. And in verse 10, art thou not it? Because it's the arm of the Lord, meaning his strength. It's just the part of him that we think of the the. You know, why do I do that all the time? You know, because it's, it's where our strength is. Amen. You know, I'm not going to arm wrestle you with my left arm. I'm not going to arm wrestle you with my right arm. I'll send Sherry. Things have changed. Not all of them. Well, rejoice in this, brethren. Amen. I am not trying to make the Word of God light. I am trying to make the Word of God exciting to you. For eager souls that want to hear it and see the glorious things that God's revealed. Amen. He shows us how we can pray to Him. 
and call on his arm and remember things he's done in the past. Do you remember in Romans chapter 5 that we should rejoice when tribulations come our way? Because tribulations work patience and patience works experience and experience works hope. There it is, right there, right there. What you did back there in Egypt, listen, no one ever heard about a sea dividing and a people walking through it on dry ground. And as soon as they got over, they turned around and looked back and the Egyptian army was drowning because the waters had closed over them. That was magnificent. Could we see something like that? Well, it happened. Cyrus the Persian took Babylon, released the Jews, and there was no more Babylon of any influence in the world. So we come to verse 12. There's five verses here, 12 through 16. God himself would save them by almighty power. Verse 12. I, even I, am he that comforteth you. Who art thou, that thou shouldest be afraid of a man that shall die, and of the son of man which shall be made as grass? And forgettest the Lord thy maker, that hath stretched forth the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth? and has feared continually every day because of the fury of the oppressor, as if he were ready to destroy. And where is the fury of the oppressor? The captive exile hasteneth that he may be loosed, and that he should not die in the pit, nor that his bread should fail. But I am the Lord thy God that divided the sea, whose raves roared. The Lord of hosts is his name. And I have put my words in thy mouth, and I have covered thee in the shadow of mine hand, that I may plant the heavens, and lay the foundations of the earth, and say unto Zion, Thou art my people. God himself would save them by almighty power. These are wonderful verses. He's he's wondering what their, their problem is, that they would fear men who have to breathe. Let's go through these quickly. Verse 12, I, even I. God is that personal with us. He has given us personal promises, and we should believe them, and we should claim them and trust them. He's given us, I, even I, am the one that's comforting you. It's no one else. Hey, it's me. It's, everything's going to be okay. You hold a child. You hold a wife. You pat her on the back. You, you pat the child. Everything's okay. It's me. I'm going to take care of it. It's the Lord, though, talking to us. I, even I, am he that comforteth you. Who art thou? And he's talking to those weak in faith or the unbelieving among the Jews. Who art thou that thou shouldest be afraid of a man that shall die and of the son of man which shall be made as grass? They're all going to disappear. Why are you afraid of them when it's I trying to comfort you? Because he has been trying to comfort. but, But these Babylonians are so rough on us. Why are you fearful of them? Verse 13, you forget the Lord thy maker. I made you. I'm your creator. You've forgotten me to worry about a little man that's going to disappear, that has stretched forth the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. And now there's a semicolon there. And so you look back, he's still asking the question, because notice the question mark down at the end of verse 13. The question is, who art thou that has feared continually every day because of the fury of the oppressor as if he were ready to destroy? Why have you been so fearful all your time in Babylon like the Babylonians were going to just kill you any day? Any day now, I'm going to get killed. Any day now, I'm going to get the coronavirus. Any day now, COVID-19 is all mine. I'm going to buy it. Who art thou? 
Why are you fearful every day thinking death is about to come to the door? Oh, there's the knock. It's the paper boy wanting to collect. And you think it's the Babylonians wanting to kill. And so why are you doing that? And the Lord does this. I hope you see the question mark at the end of the word destroy toward the end of verse 13. Then there's another question. Where is the fury of the oppressor? Because from a prophetic standpoint, God was going to get rid of that oppressor. Where is the fury of that oppressor? Show me. Listen, I've taken him right out of the way. Cyrus the Persian has, take, has come into town and he's sitting on the throne of this empire and of this city and he is going to give you leave to go back to Jerusalem. Verse 14, here's an anxious Jew in Babylon. The captive exile hasteneth that he may be loosed. He's anxious and worried every day, looking it needs to soon, if it doesn't happen soon, and that he should not die in the pit, nor that his bread should fail. I don't know if I'm going to be able to feed my family. I'm going to probably die here in Babylon. When are we going to get out of here? When are we going to get out of here? The, the captive exile is trying to hasten the escape out of Babylon. It's like kids in the back seat. Daddy, when are we going to get there? When are we going to get there? Because they're always impatient. And here's an impatient, doubting Jew. And the Lord has this to say to him. But I am the Lord thy God that divided the sea whose waves roared. The Lord of hosts is my name. I am the one comforting you. Forget being impatient or anxious about it i am going to deliver you i will save you because of the word but that opens up verse 15 which is a disjunctive setting verse 15 in opposition to verse 14 we do not look at verse 14 as a positive description of those exiles but as a negative description because the lord's comfort is set in opposition to it they're just anxious and worried about it when 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 like children would because they're afraid of dying in that city and they're afraid of not being able to provide for their families because they were Jews captive in Babylon. Listen, I'm the Lord. The Lord of hosts is my name. I've got the armies of heaven at my disposal in verse 15. And I hope you believe that. And I have put my words in thy mouth. I have given you prophecies of what I'm doing. And I have covered thee in the shadow of mine hand. You have been protected. You were taken out of Jerusalem instead of dying like most of your relatives and neighbors and i've got you here safely and you've been here safely for 70 years and i'm going to plant the heavens and lay the foundations of the earth and say unto zion thou art my people i'm going to do something as i've been creator once and i'm appealing to you to trust me in the comfort i'm giving you because i'm your creator but i'm going to do something as dramatic as creating again i'm going to replant the earth and i'm going to reestablish the heavens in the gospel kingdom of my son and i am going to say to you people that are captives and being reproached and reviled in babylon thou art my people and, and the, the gospel going to the jews and then to the gentiles was as big as redoing the creation of the heavens and the earth that's what this is saying that's why i like the expression a new world order that's what it's saying Quickly, in Ephesians chapter 1, do you know how it compares regeneration to raising Jesus from the dead? That it took the same power that raised Jesus from the dead to regenerate us, to get us, that we might know the power that was exerted on our behalf to believe. The power that it takes for any one of us to believe the gospel is the same power that it took to raise the dead body of Jesus Christ from the dead. And this one is, I'm appealing to you as your creator. So you can look backward at my creation, 
but I'm going to create something new. I'm going to create a new heaven and a new earth, in a sense, because I'm going to reestablish you, and I'm going to say to you and to the world, Thou art my people. God himself would save them by almighty power. When you doubt God, when you fear man, or when you get anxious about things, all in these five verses, you reflect poorly on your maker and your knowledge of him. For he has done greater things for you spiritually than he had done for Israel at that time. Verse 17, we have our next awake. Except it's not addressed to the Lord. It's addressed to a wasted city. Verses 17 through 20, they were impotent by just and severe chastening. You know, the prophet just bounces back and forth from a different angle to another angle on these captive Jews and their deliverance. And this, this lesson here in these four verses, 17, 18, 19, and 20, these four verses, the Jews were impotent by just and severe chastening. And I want one segment of our church right now to pay attention. And it's young men. How young should we say? 40 and under? I know I'm going to be stoned. 40 and under? Sorry. Young men, watch this. Do you remember Isaiah 3? The Lord was going to take away men and let children and women rule. It left them impotent in the destruction of their city. Awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem! which hast drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. Thou hast drunken the dregs of the cup of trembling and wrung them out. There is none to guide her among all the sons whom she hath brought forth. Neither is there any that taketh her by the hand of all the sons that she hath brought up. These two things are come unto thee. Who shall be sorry for thee? Desolation and destruction, and the famine and the sword. By whom shall I comfort thee? Thy sons have fainted. They lie at the head of all the streets, as a wild bull in a net. They are full of the fury of the Lord, the rebuke of thy God. Amen and amen. The Jews were impotent in the city of Jerusalem. And so this awake, awake, Jerusalem. It's to wake up, Jerusalem. Look what the Lord's done to you. And the deliverance is going to follow. But look what the Lord's done to you. Verse 17, the city of Jerusalem, the city of our God, the city of David, in some respects, is described as a drunken woman, having drunken the cup of the Lord's wrath and fury, and it's made her drunk. But there is none of her sons that she's given birth to. All the young males of Jerusalem are not there to take her by the hand and lead her forth because there are no leaders. There's no kings. For 70 years, that nation was left without a king and a leader. Yes, there was a biological line being preserved for the Lord Jesus Christ, but they had no king. Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, and others were their kings. There's none to guide her among all the sons. I'm addressing every young man that's 40 years of age and under. Who's going to stand up and be a leader for their families? Who's going to stand up and be leaders in this church? Who are going to be like verse 1, to follow after righteousness and to seek the Lord? 
This is terrible judgment. There's none to guide her among all the sons whom she hath brought forth. Where was Daniel? Where were the other young men like Daniel? They've been taken and neutered. They were eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Neither is there any that taketh her by the hand of all the sons that she hath brought up. In the city of Jerusalem, every other birth was a boy. Every other, every other birth could be the next king. But there's none to lead because it's women and children. The nation is terrorized because it's under the judgment of God and the sons have disappeared. You know, sons are disappearing everywhere. But let not, let's not let sons disappear. Even if there's one son that hears my voice. Even if there's one son that loves these four verses. And by these four verses, the Spirit of God convicts you for the rest of your life. I can show you verses that when I was a teenager, I still remember. And they have affected my whole life. And I will not desert the cause. Young men, stand up and be counted. Young men, be leaders. Young men, show us by your example. Young men, learn the truth so that you can defend it to others. These two things are coming to thee. There's two things in verses 19 and 20. First of all, the city is ruined. Desolation, destruction, famine, and sword. And who is going to comfort you in the face of all this destruction? Because there's no real men. You know, a son that can stand up and say, Mom, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. Dad's gone. The Lord's taken Dad. I will stand up and take care of you. There's only a few men like this in the whole world. In the whole history of the world, there's only been a few men that are real leaders that'll stand and that will help their mothers and help their churches and help their communities and help their businesses because they're leaders and they're committed to leading because God's taken away the men out of our nation. Verse 19 has in it, there are two problems. All the destruction... And there's no comforters, because verse 20 tells us again, the comforters have fainted. Thy sons have fainted. They lie at the head of all the streets as a wild bull in a net. You know, it's calling sons bulls. And that should get every young man in here excited. God calls you a bull. But when God brings judgment on a nation, he throws a net over those bulls. And so they be born like bulls. And though they're capable of being bulls, naturally, the Lord's taken away their strength. And so they have fainted because they're in a net from the Lord and they cannot get themselves free to be the leaders that young men should be. Are you going to be one? There's two Daniels sitting back there. Which of you two Daniels is going to be a real leader like this? There's a David right here. Sons have fainted. They lie at the head of all the streets. Where streets, where streets join the main thoroughfare, where you would go out to interact with the rest of the city, they're there in a net. They are full of the fury of the Lord. The rebuke of thy God has crushed the men. Your video games, ESPN, vaping, all your favorite activities. Where are the men? Stand up and be leaders. Show us something. Show us a real bull that's not in a net. A bull in a net makes a lot of noise. Can't do a thing. 
with the strength God gave him. It's in the Word of God. It's Isaiah 3 with a cross-reference. Awake! Look what's happened! Awake! God can neutralize the best part of a nation if they rebel against Him, which should cause us to pray for our sons to man up and be the godly bulls He created them to be. Amen. I wish I could suspend time and walk up and down these aisles and address every single one of you under 40. Be a man and man up and be the bull you're supposed to be. Let's close out this chapter. Verses 21 through 23. The sentence of comfort was to reverse the violence. There's a comforting sentence. Awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem, is verse 17. Jerusalem, the Lord has pounded you. And look at the situation. But remember, there was an answer to the last awaking prayer. Do you remember? The other awake is over there in verse 9. Verses 9 and 10 are the prayer. Verse 11 is the answer. We just had four verses of the prayer. Here's the answer. Therefore, hear now this, thou afflicted and drunken, but not with wine. You're drunken with the furious judgment of the Lord. Thus saith thy Lord, the Lord. This is new language. Watch carefully. Thus saith thy Lord, the Lord. Notice. You've got a ruler. Lord with little letters is ruler. Lord with capital letters is Jehovah God. Thus saith thy Lord, the Lord, and thy God that pleadeth the cause of his people. Oh yes, Lord, I want a lawyer <laughs> like you. Behold, I have taken out of thine hand the cup of trembling, even the dregs of the cup of my fury. Thou shalt no more drink it again. But I will put it into the hand of them that afflict thee, which have said to thy soul, Bow down, that we may go over. And thou hast laid thy body as the ground and as the street to them that went over. Captors forcing their captives to lie down in the mud puddle so that they could walk over them. And the chapter ends with that. I will give my cup of fury to those that have afflicted you and have walked all over you. Just remember, this is biblical. Jesus Christ in Psalm 110, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy bosom buddy, thy footstool. So re read that there. And if you go read Psalm 137, which I suggested last night of how cruel the Babylonians were to the captive Jews, they made them lie down and walked over them and trampled on them. And the Lord said, I'm going to take that cup away from you. The time in Babylon is over. You're going home. But I'm going to give the cup to Babylon to drink. And Cyrus will do my dirty work on them. Praise the Lord. There's the answer to awake, awake, the second prayer. When we come back, we'll be in the next chapter. And it will open with the third. Awake, awake. Trust the Lord, my brethren, no matter how bad things get in your life. No matter how much affliction and how much enemies seem to be having it better than you, with repentance there is a personal God that will plead for you. I love it when it says the Lord will plead for you, plead for me, and against enemies that had previously been victorious over you. The Lord will plead your cause, and He'll take the cup from you and give it to them. 
and will wait upon the Lord. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. But before I go, you young men, you men under 40 years of age, do not forget this passage. I and the other older brothers in this church, my father included, will do anything we can to make you bulls and to get out of that net and to be a bull in 2020 for your family, for your mother, for this church, for our nation. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen. Amen.